Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we ask if the world is a problem that we need to avoid, or the place where we live. Today I'm joined by Isabel Jobeck, uh, who's a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist, and also a yoga teacher. Now Isabel wrote to me earlier this year, uh, which led to starting a conversation about what it might look like if yoga teacher trainings combined traditional philosophy with modern psychology. There are no easy ways to go about that, unfortunately, partly because they both see things differently from the nature of the self to the causes of suffering and how to address it. And that's where the renouncing the world bit comes in, at least in the old texts. So we talk about some of these obstacles um, while exploring ideas for a new kind of syllabus, a yoga philosophy for the 21st century that might work around these problems to highlight compassion and uh, the altruism necessary for living together, especially in the face of adversity. So although we draw some tentative conclusions, uh, we're very much not at the end of the conversation. We're keen to keep going. So if you'd like to share some thoughts in response, uh, please go to ancientfutures.substack.com and leave us a comment. Um, you can also donate there if you're feeling so moved to support the podcast as a subscriber, which helps a great deal. Um, and if you'd like to study yogic texts and traditions in more depth, uh, you can join me for some courses at truthofyoga.com. For now, though, let's Explore how to reconcile ancient and modern with Isabel Jobeck. So, Isabel, welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Pleasure to be chatting again. Yeah, we uh, we had a really good chat this summer in Berlin, and um, we were trying to answer some questions that are very difficult to answer and uh, unsurprisingly we didn't therefore manage to find the final solution to the, the questions on our minds but um, I'm hoping that today we can go a little bit further with the conversation and see how to unite two things that are very uh, active in your professional and personal life um, the world of modern psychology and the world of traditional yoga and uh, you wrote to me asking if I knew of any academic studies that were showing how ancient yoga texts were addressing some of these same issues that uh, psychologists were engaged with and uh, 
I was saying, unfortunately, there aren't, as far as I know, that many people who are working on this topic, and they should be. So um, I wonder if you could start by just telling us a little bit about your own background. How are these two themes coming together in your life? Sure, I'm happy to do so. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist by training. Um, and um, so I'm head of the Department of Clinical Psychology at Humboldt University. And um, I'm also a yoga teacher since uh, almost a year now. And um, I uh, was introduced to yoga almost, I think, 12 years ago or so, when actually I started suffering from pretty severe migraines. And um, yeah, so I, and I discovered yoga first through a bodily approach and then increasingly became interested in its roots, you know, scriptures and so forth. And then when I uh, entered this uh, teacher trainer uh, training, um, yeah, I was really introduced a bit to the philosophy and uh, to the history of yoga. Among others, I read your book. Ah. <laughs> I, I eventually contacted you also. And um, given that I'm a scholar in the field, I was asked actually in the program, in the uh, teacher trainer program, if I would also be able to teach a bit. Obviously mm. not about yoga, but then about psychology, about uh, stress and the brain, about empathy and compassion, because that's my subject matter really as a um, as a researcher, as a scientist. Yeah. And I I was glad uh, to do so. However, I was missing a bit the links, you know, between ancient texts and contemporary uh, approaches in psychology and and neuroscience to the mind. And that's why I started digging. And um, I didn't find so much. I found obviously some articles, um, but that doesn't, didn't satisfy me, I have to say. Um, and that's why I contacted you, actually, and asked you if you are aware of you know, literature linking ancient texts and ideas and concepts uh, to more contemporary um, yeah, approaches in, in psychology or concepts. Yeah. So that's basically the background from my side. And um, you actually made a, a few suggestions that I followed up on. You recommended mm. to read Georg Feuerstein, actually. Yes. Mm. <laughs> <I> did. Because <laughs> yeah. he was basically saying we would need to find our own, you know, philosophy to frame yoga practice in the West. And he was building there on um, uh, Carl, uh, Carl Gustav Jung's idea that really, you know, Westerners should <laughs> follow their own traditions and uh, find their own way to deeper meaning rather than borrowing other people's. Yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, um, but I uh, also find that, and it's true that he based uh, his ideas or, or um, the links that he made, um, he re refers a lot to psychoanalysis and Jung specifically, mm -hmm. you know, and that's also what I told you, remember when we met, that uh, many of the yoga um, psychology texts that I read uh, heavily focus on psychoanalysis, depth psychology, and not so yeah. much really um, contemporary uh, approaches or ideas in psychology and neuroscience. And so that is actually also something I found found in his text. Although I was also astonished that he did make some um, rather interesting references also to more uh, modern approaches, um, also behaviorism, for instance, and so forth. I mean, I really looked at the book not in super detail i actually only recently uh, bought it and um but but i think it's going to be pretty useful so thanks definitely for that recommendation oh you're welcome you're welcome i mean that it was really scratching my brain um i can't remember the exact title it's something like a, the psychology of yoga i think and uh so he's 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 really i suppose you know coming at it from the other perspective originally which is you know 
yoga practice from a scholarly perspective and uh, how do we build a way of talking about the reality of living in the world today from these you know, foundations and yes. I think we find that we can't because this is the thing that you've almost stuck your finger on you know very directly it's like putting the finger in the wound and um, as a modern yoga person who's really interested in this I immediately sense it I can really feel that you've got right to the the, the nerve um, because a lot of these old texts aren't interested in empathy and compassion they are almost about the renounce you know, renouncing of everything to do with community to do with you know every conventional way of thinking about society and that's not what we're told a lot of the times so that people make connections that don't really exist i think if we look really at the old texts on their own terms which is, that is challenging yeah. Yes, it's very interesting. And I actually learned about this by uh, reading your book and listening to your podcast, you know, because you're absolutely right in um, uh, when you when you learn about these concepts in yoga classes and certainly also in the context of my uh, teacher training, um, compassion and, and empathy are so much part of this, you know, and it, it seems like um, this is almost, you know, uh, comes from ancient texts. And then it's interesting to learn that, you no, know, it's more this uh, ascetic idea and maybe, you know, get well with everybody so you can, you know, uh, they, they don't get on your nerves when you're trying to yeah. meditate. Basically, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Eliminate all sources of distraction and then remove suffering from the world, not by fixing the world, but by removing yourself from the world and then you're not contributing to suffering so you're you, you know you've cleaned up your act and that's a little bit better your corner of the universe and obviously yeah. that's not the only strand in yoga traditions and we talked a little bit when we met about some of the other dimensions obviously there's a text the Bhagavad Gita that turns that upside down and says no you must be part of the world it's impossible to escape being active you have to take action so it's the question yeah how helpful is your action and yes. then in the tantric traditions as you were pointing out um, there is a, a reappraisal really of the world the idea is that there's there's no point in escaping because there's nowhere to go except here in the world and so you have to wake up to the reality of everything being transformative perhaps so there's yes. nothing to run away from we go deeper into it um, so those traditions are there, but you know, the text that everybody reaches for is the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, and that one is 100% in the ascetic camp, and we yes. can't get away from it. Although, are you? I mean, if I'm, I'm looking at this uh, sutra that specifically um, says that you can calm your mind through compassion and empathy in the first chapter. Do you really think that also there he refers to, um, you know? these kind of constructs um, or these kind of, you know, capacities um, only help you to, to withdraw basically, or do you think um, it also has a, yeah, another meaning to really calm the mind by these qualities? It's a really good question. I, 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 I often get asked about this sutra, the 33rd sutra in the yes, first exactly. chapter, um, yeah. where there are these lists of four qualities, um, yes. friend, friendliness, compassion, um, okay. appreciating joy uh, or having an appreciative joy towards other people, yes. and then also a level of equanimity mm -hmm. and yes. uh, yeah. indifference even. Um, so exactly. those four qualities, um, they are very much uh, prized also in Buddhism and in Buddhist contexts, they are described a lot more holistically and a lot more universally 
So um, all of them are supposed to be applied to all beings, basically. Um, whereas in that Yoga Sutra, there's an arrangement of those four things with another four types of people, somebody who's happy, somebody who's suffering, yes. um, somebody who is behaving well, and somebody who's behaving badly. And the things are linked specifically one to another based on the earliest commentary that goes with the Yoga Sutra. And in that commentary, it's it's very clear the way it's described. It just says, um, you know, you need to be friendly to people who are happy. You need to be compassionate to people who are in distress. You need to show goodwill towards those who are virtuous. And uh, when people are behaving badly, you should be indifferent to them, effectively overlooking their faults, because this gives rise to virtue in the form of a pure mind and a pure mind is able to become concentrated and attain serenity. So the emphasis is on the mind, and it's all about the number one goal of yoga, which is stilling the mind. And there's no other sutras that talk about how you should behave in the world. And there's quite a few sutras talking about how you should remove yourself from the world. And so the translator, I'm holding here a copy of a book called Yoga Philosophy of Patanjali by uh, Swami Hariharananda Aranya, and he translates the full commentary. And he also provides his own commentary. And uh, he was a very interesting guy. He spent the last 25 years of his life locked in a cave because <laughs> he thought that was the way to live Patanjali's yoga. Um, and uh, he says at the very end when he's explaining um, to overlook the lapses of others is indifference. It's not positive thinking, but restraining the mind from dwelling on the frailties of others. And uh, you can therefore see it two ways, I think. You yes. can interpret it as a way in which you can be in the world and not be triggered by other people being you know, <laughs> unpleasant or evildoers. Effectively, you can live among people who are really... Um, doing things that you want to get angry about without getting angry. You can be indifferent in that sense. But I don't think that's the way that the text wants it to be understood. I think it's all about, um, it's all part of a long list of things you can do to steady the mind. It's the first in the list. And then you get you know, to the end, you can steady your mind by focusing on anything, the 39th Sutra. So yes. it's that's the goal. And anything that gets in the way of that is the problem. And I think ultimately for Patanjali, social life is a problem because it gets in the way of the clear mind. And so there's the sutra all about you know, your body and the way that it wants you to interact with other people needs to be overcome. And, and the true expression of cleanliness, therefore, is yeah, to be disgusted by your body. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's really not about the world. Yeah, but... But me as a social neuroscientist, obviously, I would say this is a misconception, you know, of potentially maybe because, I mean, our yeah, thing, yeah. our way of being is so social, so inherently social, you know, I mean, um, we are born already, you know, in the womb, we are closely intertwined uh, with another being, you know, and, yes. and we are so social creatures. And I mean, there's uh, th th this field of um, social cognition, you know, is exactly about that. It does show how many biases there are in our thinking, how many tendencies we have in our thinking and in our emotions and so forth. Um uh, that do show that other individuals have a massive impact on our on on our thinking, right? So, so to think that um, just refraining from everything that's social, even because even though um, you might be alone and you might withdraw, um, I think you 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 don't get rid naturally of your or immediately of your of your thinking styles and patterns, you know, and they are so social. 
So it, yeah, it's. Don't you think it, it, it's a somewhat of a misconception to think a hundred percent? Yeah, yeah, no. and and again, I think you've really put your finger on the problem. Um, people want these old texts to respond to the realities in which we live but they were responding to a different reality with different priorities and they didn't have the knowledge that we have now about all of the things you've just described um and in that original context of a you know, very crude solution to a big problem of you know, there is suffering it's to do with how we relate to our idea of ourselves and our surroundings the really simple solution is to shut down and then there is no more surroundings there's no more idea of myself and there's therefore no more problem but as you say it's more complex than that and actually we exist in relationships and the joy of life is to have relationships that go well <laughs> and what we can do in fact is to try and improve our relationships and there are ideas in the yoga sutra that we can use to help us do that i think it's not to say we have to throw away the text but we're going to have to reinterpret it based on a new way of seeing that's that's the thing i really keep coming back to and um i think you've identified very clearly that if we come at it knowing what we know about who we are then we're going to have to almost write a new text that can borrow some of those ideas. But just to say that this text gives us the solution to those problems doesn't really do justice to the text itself or to our sense of what the problems are, because we're trying to make two things that are different shapes fit together. And much better to say they're totally different shapes and make a new thing <laughs> that deals with both of them. That's my my personal view. But sorry, you're going to say something. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's uh, it's fine. I'm 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 really interested in hearing what you think about this. The question is, do we really need to make um, one thing out of two different things? You know, my original mm. idea in contacting you was not necessarily to say uh, let's combine it, uh, ancient texts with contemporary um, ideas, and then you know see how how we can get to a to more truthful or you know more closer to human nature uh, thing that where we combine everything maybe not necessarily also and i learned this also from you because um yoga texts are so different over the centuries right uh, yeah. in their approaches in their conceptualizations of the mind of consciousness of the self you know of um of you know all these different faculties in the mind and so forth so i mean that's to start with difficult to say what, what do we refer to you know what yeah. do we um relate our contemporary approaches to you know um obviously as you mentioned patanjali is the most uh, famous one probably but there's uh, other texts that uh, you know in, in many respects come maybe closer to to what we think yeah. now about um human beings but my idea was not so much when i approached you to to to, to mix them up somehow but to um to see how can a teacher training or, you know, somebody who yes. wants to learn about yoga, who's interested in both um, ancient texts and conceptualizations, as well as new ideas, uh, contemporary ideas in psychology, how can we relate these together without being too, um, yeah, with still having kind of a red thread through things, you know, not just taking hundred different little bits and pieces and say chitta relates to that and some skaras relate to that and you know this relates to that, but having more of a, you know, um, 
yeah, um, a story or narrative uh, that's kind of mm -hmm. understandable and that yet takes some of the bigger concepts. That's what I was looking for kind of in texts, you know, some of the bigger concepts and say, okay, how do we think about these things now in terms of, you know, psychology and neuroscience um, and not necessarily saying you were wrong back then, you know, to these uh, scriptures. No, so. no, no, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate. I was a bit unsubtle in the way I phrased that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it could still be an idea to see uh, how and what can we use and, and combine with uh, with contemporary approaches. And I mean, you know, in many, uh, I'm also, as I told you, a psychotherapist and um, a CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapist. And mm. I don't know if you're familiar with CBT a bit, but we have different waves in, in cognitive behavioral therapy. So we talk about the first wave that heavily focused on Uh, learning principles, uh, you know, um, reinforcement learning and so forth. Um, but then we had a second wave that focused more on thoughts and the change of, of dysfunctional thoughts, of negative thoughts in an idea to also change then negative emotionality. So this obviously, um, you know, has a, has a strong reference to Patanjali's uh, first uh, sutras, you know, um, the stilling of the mind. So trying to get uh, the chitta to shut up <laughs> somehow, you know, <laughs> um, that's that's very much what we do in cognitive behavior therapy. We, we look uh, at these thoughts of, of these at these automatic often negative thoughts, at least when people come to us, they are mostly depressed or burned out or very anxious. And so a lot of time they have a lot of negative thoughts. So we are trying to, uh, to, to look at them and to reframe them. So that was the second wave. And the third wave, actually, and that's why I'm saying this now, has taken more of a holistic approach. Um, it's not necessarily trying to change thoughts, but um, has more of an accepting stance, more of an, mm -hmm. you know, um, take a step back look at yourself and and um, similar to what we do in mindfulness and mindfulness is actually uh, a large approach in, in this third wave of um, um, of cognitive behavior therapy where we say okay look at these thoughts there are these thoughts there are emotions there are behaviors but you are not entirely these these uh, negative thoughts you know so it's, it's you can actually distance yourself from them uh, you can actually try to not identify yourself too much with them and then there we are again with yoga right uh, so it's very close to what uh, yoga has to say actually the the misidentification of the self with these negative thoughts that's kind of at the core of the problem right or i mean you have to tell me 100 yeah. no 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 i think i think i think actually you've just through that example given real clear form to what i was stumbling around in the dark looking for um there is a connecting thread there from you know, ancient philosophy to modern clinical practice and mm -hmm. it comes to this idea of misidentification so that's a really key principle in both contexts. And so what I guess we have to do is try to decide which one is you know, driving the car, so to speak, and which one is the passenger. And I think if it's going to be in the context, as you were saying, of a yoga teacher training, we have to try and find a way of, 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 of actually meeting in the middle um, because it is needing to somehow be anchored in yoga tradition and yet at the same time to serve modern people who are living in the world in the 21st century with all of this awareness. And so if the whole thing is built around the idea that we have a problem with misidentification, then you can serve both of those goals at once. But the next step will be immediately to define what's the source of this misidentification and what's the solution to it. And the traditional yoga path will have a very different answer to that 
the the modern psychology path um effectively the the traditional yoga one will tell you that your your ideas about yourself just need letting go of in fact the self that you think that you are is not you neither the body nor the mind you are in fact this um unidentifiable thing the purusha or the atman um that doesn't really have a correlate in modern psychological language and the psychologists will say actually no 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 we just need to get your functional self um better able to function in the world and so we'll uh, we'll try and um do first aid and repair work and and you know help it be take it to the self gym so that it can be the best self it can be and to the yoga mindset that would always be the wrong solution and yet that's how most of us live and so it's somehow again trying to find a way to balance them and almost therefore that's why i think we need this third thing in the middle the new book that pulls it all together so let's say for this yoga teacher training that we're imagining it would have to be a new syllabus and it would have to be written with some first principles and there's one that goes even before the misidentification and um, it's that you know we have problems as people we suffer and that's again the connecting thread between the ancient that's... idea we suffer because we act in the world and therefore we need to stop acting is the crudest yeah. ancient idea or the modern one you know things happen to us that we don't know how to process and and we get stuck in these cycles of thought so the aim is not to shut down thought the nirodha of the chittavriti in patanjali's case is basically disable your mind and uh, make it in a unable to function in the old-fashioned way whereas the cbt approach if i understand correctly would be to take your mind to um you know the the garage where they service the car and you know, perhaps replace some parts and then give it some new oil and get it better functioning and then you know it can drive off smoothly without belching out a big cloud out of the back so it's still going to be a working mind it just needs fine tuning and uh, and repairing Well, yes, in part, you're right. I mean, at least if you would focus on the second wave of CBT, if you focus more on the third wave of uh, CBT, then it's really much more about accepting your thoughts within Mm -hmm. a certain context, developing values, um, not necessarily judging something as as good or bad. So, So not so much going into the garage, but taking a step back. So, so I think that comes closer to to the ancient uh, yoga text, you know. Although you're absolutely right, and that's I think a good question. Um, if the the first um, assumptions, you know, about what a person actually constitutes or what it what what he or she is, you know, is so vastly different, um, can there actually at all be uh, coming together, you know, so to say, um, of these different approaches? I think that's that's an interesting one, actually, you know. Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, To continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com.